Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Anne of Green Gables, the third book in our series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Now, Marilyn will bring the characters to life in this dramatic reading exclusively from the Zoomer Podcast Network. Without further ado, here is Marilyn Lightstone to read us Anne of Green Gables. Chapter 27 Vanity and Vexation of Spirit Marilla, walking home one late April evening from an aid meeting, realized that the winter was over and gone with the thrill of delight that spring never fails to bring to the oldest and saddest, as well as to the youngest and merriest. Marilla was not given to subjective analysis of her thoughts and feelings. She probably imagined that she was thinking about the aides and their missionary box, and the new carpet for the vestry room. But under these reflections was a harmonious consciousness of red fields smoking into pale purpley mists in the declining sun, of long, sharp-pointed fir shadows falling over the meadow beyond the brook, a still, crimson-budded maples around a mirror-like wood pool, of awakening in the world and a stir of hidden pulses under the grey sod. The spring was abroad in the land, and Marilla's sober, middle-aged step was lighter and swifter because of its deep, primal gladness. Her eyes dwelt affectionately on Green Gables, peering through its network of trees and reflecting the sunlight back from its windows in several little coruscations of glory. Marilla, as she picked her steps along the damp lane, thought that it was really a satisfaction to know that she was going home to a briskly snapping wood fire and a table nicely spread for tea instead of to the cold comfort of old aid meetings evenings before Anne had come to Green Gables. Consequently, when Marilla entered her kitchen and found the fire blacked out, with no sign of Anne anywhere, she felt justly disappointed and irritated. She had told Anne to be sure and have tea ready at five o'clock, but now she must hurry to take off her second-best dress and prepare the meal herself against Matthew's return from plowing. "'I'll settle Miss Anne when she comes home,' said Marilla grimly, as she shaved up kindlings with a carving knife and with more vim than was strictly necessary. Matthew had come in and was waiting patiently for his tea in his corner. "'She's getting off somewhere with Diana.' "'writing stories or practicing dialogues "'or some such tomfoolery "'and never thinking once about the time or her duties. "'She's just got to be pulled up short and sudden on this sort of thing. "'I don't care if Mrs. Allen does say "'she's the brightest and sweetest child she ever knew. "'She may be bright and sweet enough, "'but her head is full of nonsense, "'and there's never any knowing what shape it'll break out in next.' Just as soon as she grows out of one freak, she takes up with another. <sighs> but there, here I am, saying the very thing I was so riled with Rachel Lynde for saying at the aid today. I was real glad when Mrs. Allen spoke up for Anne, for if she hadn't, I know I'd have said something too sharp to Rachel before everybody. Anne's got plenty of faults, goodness knows, 
and far be it from me to deny it. But I'm bringing her up, and not Rachel Lynde, who'd pick faults in the angel Gabriel himself if he lived in Avonlea. Just the same, and has no business to leave the house like this when I told her she was to stay home this afternoon and look after things. I must say, with all her faults, I never found her disobedient or untrustworthy before, and I'm real sorry to find her so now. Well, no, I don't know, said Matthew, who, being patient and wise, and, above all, hungry, had deemed it best to let Marilla talk her wrath out unhindered, having learned by experience that she got through with whatever work was on hand much quicker, if not delayed by untimely argument. Mm, perhaps you're judging her too hasty, Marilla. Don't call her untrustworthy until you're sure she has disobeyed you. Maybe it can all be explained. Anne's a great hand at explaining. She's not here when I told her to stay, retorted Marilla. I reckon she'll find it hard to explain that to my satisfaction. Of course, I knew you'd take her part, Matthew, but I'm bringing her up, not you. It was dark when supper was ready and still no sign of Anne, coming hurriedly over the log bridge or up Lover's Lane, breathless and repentant with a sense of neglected duties. Marilla washed and put away the dishes grimly. Then, wanting a candle to light her way down the cellar, she went up to the east gable for the one that generally stood on Anne's table. Lighting it, she turned around to see Anne herself lying on the bed, face downward among the pillows. Mercy on us, said astonished Marilla. Have you been asleep, Anne? No, was the muffled reply. Are you sick, then? demanded Marilla anxiously, going over to the bed. Anne cowered deeper into her pillows, as if desirous of hiding herself forever from mortal eyes. No, but please, Marilla, go away and don't look at me. I'm in the depths of despair, and I don't care who gets head in class or writes the best composition or sings in the Sunday school choir any more. Little things like that are of no importance now because I don't suppose I'll ever be able to go anywhere again. My career is closed. Please, Marilla, go away and don't look at me. Did anyone ever hear the like? The mystified Marilla wanted to know. And surely, whatever is the matter with you? What have you done? Get right up this minute and tell me. This minute, I say. There now, what is it? Anne had slid to the floor in despairing obedience. <gasps> Look at my hair, Marilla, she whispered. Accordingly, Marilla lifted her candle and looked scrutinizingly at Anne's hair, flowing in heavy masses down her back. It certainly had a very strange appearance. Anne Shirley, what have you done to your hair? Why, it's green. Green, it might be called, 
if it were any earthly color, a queer, dull, bronzy green, with streaks here and there of the original red to heighten the ghastly effect. Never in all her life had Marilla seen anything so grotesque as Anne's hair at that moment. Yes, it's green, moaned Anne. I thought nothing could be as bad as red hair. But now I know it's ten times worse to have green hair. Oh, Marilla, you little know how utterly wretched I am. I little know how you got into this fix, but I mean to find out, said Marilla. Come right down to the kitchen. It's too cold up here. And tell me just what you've done. Oh, I've been expecting something queer for some time. You haven't got into any scrape for over two months, and I was sure another one was due. Now then, what did you do to your hair? I, I dyed it. Dyed it? Dyed your hair? And surely, didn't you know it was a wicked thing to do? Yes, I knew it was a little wicked, admitted Anne. But I thought it was worthwhile to be a little wicked to get rid of red hair. I counted the cost, Marilla. Besides, I meant to be extra good in other ways to make up for it. Well, said Marilla sarcastically, if I decided it was worthwhile to dye my hair, I'd have dyed it a decent color at least. I wouldn't have dyed it green. But, but I didn't mean to dye it green. Marilla, protested Anne dejectedly. If I was wicked, I meant to be wicked to some purpose. He said it would turn my hair a beautiful raven black. He positively assured me that it would. How could I doubt his word, Marilla? I know what it feels like to have your word doubted. And Mrs. Allen says we should never suspect anyone of not telling us the truth unless we have proof that they're not. I have proof now. Green hair is proof enough for anybody. But I hadn't then, and I believed every word he said implicitly. Who said? Who are you talking about? The peddler that was here this afternoon. I bought the dye from him. And surely, how often have I told you never to let one of those Italians in the house... I don't believe in encouraging them to come around at all. Oh, I didn't let him in the house. I remembered what you told me. And I went out, carefully shut the door, and looked at his things on the step. Besides, he wasn't an Italian. He was a German. He had a big box full of very interesting things, and he told me he was working hard to make enough money to bring his wife and children out from Germany. He spoke so feelingly about them that it touched my heart. I wanted to buy something from him to help him in such a worthy object. Then, all at once, I saw the bottle of hair dye. The peddler said it was warranted to dye any hair a beautiful raven black and wouldn't wash off. In a trice, I saw myself with beautiful raven-black hair, and the temptation was irresistible. But 
The price of the bottle was seventy-five cents, and I had only fifty cents left out of my chicken money. I think the peddler had a very kind heart, for he said that, seeing it was me, he'd sell it for fifty cents, and that was just giving it away. So I bought it, and as soon as he had gone, I came up here and applied it with an old hairbrush, as the direction said. I used up the whole bottle, and, oh, Marilla, when I saw the dreadful color it turned my hair, I repented of being wicked, I can tell you, and I've been repenting ever since. Well, I hope you'll repent to good purpose, said Marilla severely, and that you've got your eyes opened to where your vanity has led you, Anne. Goodness knows what's to be done. Oh, I suppose the first thing is to give your hair a good washing and see if that will do any good. Accordingly, Anne washed her hair, scrubbing it vigorously with soap and water. But for all the difference it made, she might as well have been scouring its original red. The peddler had certainly spoken the truth when he declared that the dye wouldn't wash off. However, his veracity might be impeached in other respects. Oh, Marilla, what shall I do? questioned Anne in tears. I can never live this down. People have pretty well forgotten my other mistakes. The liniment cake, and setting Diana drunk, and flying into a temper with Mrs. Lynn, but they'll never forget this. <laughs> They will, they will think I am not respectable. Oh, Marilla, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. That is poetry, but it is true. And oh, how Josie Pye will laugh. Marilla, I cannot face Josie Pye. I am the unhappiest girl in Prince Edward Island. Anne's unhappiness continued for a week. During that time, she went nowhere and shampooed her hair every day. Diana alone of outsiders knew the fatal secret, but she promised solemnly never to tell. And it may be stated here and now that she kept her word. At the end of the week, Marilla said decidedly, "'It's no use, Anne.' That is fast dye, if ever there was any. Your hair must be cut off. There is no other way. You can't go out with it looking like that. Anne's lips quivered, but she realized the bitter truth of Marilla's remarks. With a dismal sigh, she went for the scissors. Please, cut it off at once, Marilla, and have it over. Oh, I feel that my heart is broken. This is such an unromantic affliction. The girls in books lose their hairs in fevers or sell it to get money for some good deed, and I'm sure I wouldn't mind losing my hair in some such fashion half so much. But there's nothing comforting in having your hair cut off because you've dyed it a dreadful color, is there? I'm going to weep all the time you're cutting it off, if it won't interfere. It seems such a tragic thing. Anne wept then. But later on, when she went upstairs and looked in the glass, she was calm with despair.
Marilla had done her work thoroughly, and it had been necessary to shingle the hair as closely as possible. The result was not becoming, to state the case as mildly as may be. Anne promptly turned her glass to the wall. I'll never, never look at myself again until my hair grows, she exclaimed passionately. Then she suddenly righted the glass. Yes, yes, I will, too. I do penance for being wicked that way. I'll look at myself every time I come to my room and see how ugly I am. And I won't try to imagine it away, either. I never thought I was vain about my hair, of all things. But now I know I was, in spite of its being red, because it was so long and thick and curly. I expect something will happen to my nose next. Anne's clipped head made a sensation in school on the following Monday, but to her relief, nobody guessed the real reason for it, not even Josie Pye, who, however, did not fail to inform Anne that she looked like a perfect scarecrow. I didn't say anything when Josie said that to me, Anne confided that evening to Marilla, who was lying on the sofa after one of her headaches, because I thought it was part of my punishment, and I ought to bear it patiently. It's hard to be told you look like a scarecrow, and I wanted to say something back, but I didn't. I just swept her one scornful look, and then I forgave her. It makes you feel very virtuous when you forgive people, doesn't it? I mean to devote all my energies to being good after this, and I shall never try to be beautiful again. Of course, it's better to be good. I know it is. But it's sometimes so hard to believe a thing, even when you know it. I do really want to be good, Marilla, like you and Mrs. Allen and Miss Stacy, and grow up to be a credit to you. Diana says, when my hair begins to grow, to tie a black velvet ribbon around my head with a bow at one side. She says she thinks it will be very becoming. I will call it a snood. That sounds so romantic. But uh, am I talking too much, Marilla? Does it hurt your head? My head is better now. It was terrible bad this afternoon, though. These headaches of mine are getting worse and worse. I'll have to see a doctor about them. As for your chatter, <laughs> I don't know that I mind it. I've got so used to it. Which was Marilla's way of saying that she liked to hear it. Chapter 28 An Unfortunate Lily Maid Of course you must be Elaine, Anne, said Diana. I could never have the courage to float down there. Nor I, said Ruby Gillis, with a shiver. I don't mind floating down when there's two or three of us in the flat, and we can sit up. It's fun, then. But to lie down and pretend I was dead. I just couldn't. I'd die really a fright. Of course, it would be romantic, conceded Jane Andrews, but I know I couldn't keep still. I'd be popping up every minute or so to see where I was and if I wasn't drifting too far out. And you know, Anne, that would spoil the effect. But it's so ridiculous to have a red-headed Elaine, mourned Anne. 
I'm not afraid to float down, and I'd love to be Elaine. But it's ridiculous just the same. Ruby ought to be Elaine because she is so fair and has such lovely, long, golden hair. Elaine had all her bright hair streaming down, you know. And Elaine was the lily maid. Now, a red-haired person cannot be a lily maid. Your complexion is just as fair as Ruby's, said Diana earnestly. And your hair is ever so much darker than it used to be before you cut it. Oh, do you really think so? exclaimed Anne, flushing sensitively with delight. I've sometimes thought it was myself, but I never dare to ask anyone for fear she would tell me it wasn't. Do you think it could be called Auburn now, Diana? Yes, and I think it is real pretty, said Diana, looking admiringly at the short, silky curls that clustered over Anne's head and were held in place by a very jaunty black velvet ribbon and bow. They were standing on the bank of the pond, below Orchard Slope where a little headland fringed with birches ran out from the bank. At its tip was a small wooden platform built out into the water for the convenience of fishermen and duck hunters. Ruby and Jane were spending the midsummer afternoon with Diana, and Anne had come over to play with them. Anne and Diana had spent most of their playtime that summer on and about the pond, Idlewild was a thing of the past, Mr. Bell having ruthlessly cut down the little circle of trees in his back pasture in the spring. Anne had sat among the stumps and wept, not without an eye to the romance of it, but she was speedily consoled, for, after all, as she and Diana said, big girls of thirteen, going on fourteen, were too old for such childish amusements as playhouses— and there were more fascinating sports to be found about the pond. It was splendid to fish for trout over the bridge, and the two girls learned to row themselves about in the little flat-bottomed dory Mr. Barry kept for duck-shooting. It was Anne's idea that they dramatize Elaine. They had studied Tennyson's poem in school the preceding winter— the superintendent of education having prescribed it in the English course for the Prince Edward Island schools. They had analyzed and parsed it and torn it to pieces in general until it was a wonder there was any meaning at all left in it for them. But at least the fair Lily Maid and Lancelot and Guinevere and King Arthur had become very real people to them and Anne was devoured by secret regret that she had not been born in Camelot. Those days, she said, were so much more romantic than the present. Anne's plan was hailed with enthusiasm. The girls had discovered that if the flat were pushed off from the landing place, it would drift down with the current under the bridge and finally strand itself on another headland lower down, which ran out at a curve in the pond. They had often gone down like this, and nothing could be more convenient for playing Elaine. Well, I'll be Elaine, said Anne, yielding reluctantly, for although she would have been delighted to play the principal character, yet her artistic sense demanded fitness for it, and this, she felt, her limitations made impossible. Ruby, 
you must be King Arthur, and Jane will be Guinevere, and Diana must be Lancelot. But first you must be the brothers and the father. We can't have the old dumb servitor because there isn't room for two in the flat when one is lying down. We must pull the barge all its length in blackest samite. That old black shawl of your mother's will be just the thing, Diana. The black shawl having been procured, and spread it over the flat, and then lay down on the bottom with closed eyes and hands folded over her breast. Oh, she does really look dead, whispered Ruby Gillis nervously, watching the still, white little face under the flickering shadows of the birches. It makes me feel frightened, girls. She suppose it's really right to act like this. Mrs. Lynn says that all play-acting is abominably wicked, wicked. Ruby, you shouldn't talk about Mrs. Lynde, said Anne severely. It spoils the effect, because this is hundreds of years before Mrs. Lynde was born. Jane, you arrange this. It's silly for Elaine to be talking when she's dead. Jane rose to the occasion. Cloth of gold for coverlet there was none. But an old piano scarf of yellow Japanese crepe was an excellent substitute. A white lily was not obtainable just then, but the effect of a tall blue iris placed in one of Anne's folded hands was all that could be desired. Now, she's all ready, said Jane. We must kiss her quiet brows. And Diana, you say, sister, farewell forever. And Ruby, you say, Farewell, sweet sister, both of you as sorrowfully as you possibly can. Anne, for goodness sakes, smile a little. You know, Elaine lay as though she smiled. Ah, that's better. Now, push the flat off. The flat was accordingly pushed off, scraping roughly over an old embedded stake in the process. Diana and Jane and Ruby only waited long enough to see it caught in the current and headed for the bridge before scampering up through the woods, across the road, and down to the lower headland, where, as Lancelot and Guinevere and the king, they were to be in readiness to receive the lily maid. For a few minutes, Anne, drifting slowly down, enjoyed the romance of her situation to the full. Then, Something happened not at all romantic. The flat began to leak. In a very few moments it was necessary for Elaine to scramble to her feet, pick up her cloth of gold coverlet, and pull of blackest samite, and gaze blankly at a big crack in the bottom of her barge, through which the water was literally pouring. That sharp stake at the landing had torn off the strip of batting nailed on the flat. Anne did not know this, but it did not take her long to realize that she was in a dangerous plight. At this rate, the flat would fill and sink long before it could drift to the lower headland. Where were the oars? Left behind at the landing. Anne gave one gasping little scream, which nobody ever heard. She was white to the lips, but she did not lose her self-possession. There was one chance— just one. I was horribly frightened, she told Mrs. Allen the next day, 
and it seemed like years while the flat was drifting down to the bridge and the water rising in it every moment. I prayed, Mrs. Allen, most earnestly, but I didn't shut my eyes to pray, for I knew the only way God could save me was to let the flat float close enough to one of the bridge piles for me to climb up on it. You know, the piles are just old tree trunks, and there are lots of knots and old branch stubs on them. It was proper to pray, but I had to do my part by watching out, and right well I knew it. I just said, Oh, dear God, please take the flat close to a pile, and I'll do the rest, over and over again. Under such circumstances, you don't think much about making a flowery prayer. But mine was answered, for the flat bumped right into a pile for a minute, and I flung the scarf and the shawl over my shoulder and scrambled up on a big providential stub. And there I was, Mrs. Allen, clinging to that slippery old pile with no way of getting up or down. It was a very unromantic position, but I didn't think about that at the time. You don't think much about romance when you have just escaped from a watery grave. <sighs> I said a grateful prayer at once, and then I gave all my attention to holding on tight, for I knew I should probably have to depend on human aid to get back to dry land. The flat drifted under the bridge, and then promptly sank in midstream. Ruby, Jane, and Diana, already awaiting it on the lower headland, saw it disappear before their very eyes, and had not a doubt but that Anne had gone down with it. For a moment they stood still, white as sheets, frozen with horror at the tragedy. Then, shrieking at the tops of their voices, they started on a frantic run up through the woods never pausing as they crossed the main road to glance the way of the bridge. Anne, clinging desperately to her precarious foothold, saw their flying forms and heard their shrieks. Help would come soon, but meanwhile her position was a very uncomfortable one. The minutes passed by, each seeming an hour to the unfortunate Lily Maid. Why didn't somebody come? Where had the girls gone? Suppose they had fainted, one and all. Suppose, suppose nobody ever came. Suppose she grew so tired and cramped that she could hold on no longer. Anne looked at the wicked green depths below her, wavering with long, oily shadows, and shivered. Her imagination began to suggest all manner of gruesome possibilities to her. Then, just as she thought she really could not endure the ache in her arms and wrists another moment, Gilbert Blythe came rowing under the bridge in Harmon Andrew's dory. Gilbert glanced up, and much to his amazement, beheld a little white scornful face looking down upon him with big, frightened, but also scornful gray eyes. And Shirley, how on earth did you get there?' he exclaimed. Without waiting for an answer, he pulled close to the pile and extended his hand. There was no help for it. Anne, clinging to Gilbert Blythe's hand, screamed,
scrambled down into the dory, where she sat, drabbled and furious in the stern, with her arms full of dripping shawl and wet crepe. It was certainly extremely difficult to be dignified under the circumstances. "'What has happened, Anne?' asked Gilbert, taking up his oars. "'We were playing Elaine,' explained Anne frigidly, without even looking at her rescuer. "'And I had to dress down to Camelot in the barge. I mean, the flat. The flat began to leak, and I climbed up out on the pile. The girls went for help.' "'Will you be kind enough to row me to the landing?' "'Gilbert obligingly rowed to the landing, "'and Anne, disdaining assistance, sprang nimbly on shore. "'I am very much obliged to you,' she said haughtily as she turned away. "'But Gilbert had also sprung from the boat "'and now laid a detaining hand on her arm. "'Anne,' he said hurriedly, "'look here, can't we be good friends?' I'm awfully sorry I made fun of your hair that time. I didn't mean to vex you, and I only meant it for a joke. Besides, it's so long ago. I think your hair's awfully pretty now. Honest, I do. Let's be friends. For a moment, Anne hesitated. She had an odd, newly awakened consciousness under all her outraged dignity that the half-shy, half-eager expression in Gilbert's hazel eyes was something that was very good to see. Her heart gave a quick, queer little beat. But the bitterness of her old grievance promptly stiffened up her wavering determination. That scene of two years before flashed back into her recollection as vividly as if it had taken place yesterday. Gilbert had called her carrots, and had brought about her disgrace before the whole school. Her resentment, which to other and older people might be as laughable as its cause, was in no whit allayed and softened by time, seemingly. She hated Gilbert Blythe, she would never forgive him. No, she said coldly. I shall never be friends with you, Gilbert Blythe, and I don't want to be. All right, Gilbert sprang into a skiff with an angry color in his cheeks. I'll never ask you to be friends again, Anne Shirley, and I don't care either. He pulled away with swift, defiant strokes, and Anne went up the steep, ferny little path under the maples. She held her head very high, but she was conscious of an odd feeling of regret. She almost wished she had answered Gilbert differently. Of course, he had insulted her terribly, but, but still. Altogether, Anne rather thought it would be a relief to sit down and have a good cry. She was really quite unstrung for the reaction from her fright and cramped clinging was making itself felt. Halfway up the path, she met Jane and Diana rushing back to the pond in a state narrowly removed from positive frenzy. They had found nobody at Orchard Slope, both Mr. and Mrs. Barry being away. Here, Ruby Gillis had succumbed to hysterics and was left to recover from them as best she might, while Jane and Diana flew through the haunted wood and across the brook to Green Gables. There they had found nobody either, for Marilla had gone to Carmody and Matthew was making hay in the back field. Oh, Anne, gasped Diana, 
fairly falling on the former's neck and weeping with relief and delight. Oh, Anne, we thought you were drowned and we felt like murderers because we had made you be Elaine and Ruby is in hysterics. Oh, Anne, how did you escape? I climbed up on one of the piles, explained Anne wearily. And Gilbert Blythe came along in Mr. Andrew's dory and brought me to land. Oh, Anne, how splendid of him! Why, it's so romantic, said Jane, finding breath enough for utterance at last. Of course you'll speak to him after this. Of course I won't, flashed Anne, with a momentary return of her old spirit. And I don't want ever to hear the word romantic again. "'Jane Andrews, I'm awfully sorry you were so frightened, girls. "'It is all my fault. "'I feel sure I was born under an unlucky star. "'Everything I do gets me or my dearest friends into a scrape. "'We've gone and lost your father's flat, Diana, "'and I have a presentiment that will not be allowed to row on the pond any more.' Anne's presentiment proved more trustworthy than presentiments are apt to do. Great was the consternation in the Barry and Cuthbert households when the events of the afternoon became known. "'Will you ever have any sense, Anne?' groaned Marilla. "'Oh, yes, I think I will, Marilla,' returned Anne optimistically. A good cry, indulged in the grateful solitude of the East Gable— had soothed her nerves and restored her to her wonted cheerfulness. I think my prospects of becoming sensible are brighter now than ever. I don't see how, said Marilla. Well, explained Anne, I've learned a new and valuable lesson today. Ever since I came to Green Gables, I've been making mistakes, and each mistake has helped to cure me of some great shortcoming. The affair of the amethyst brooch, for example, cured me of meddling with things that didn't belong to me. The haunted wood mistake cured me of letting my imagination run away with me. The liniment cake mistake cured me of carelessness and cooking. And dyeing my hair cured me of vanity. I never think about my hair and nose now. At least, very seldom. And today's mistake is going to cure me of being too romantic. I have come to the conclusion that it is no use trying to be romantic in Avonlea. It was probably easy enough in Towered Camelot hundreds of years ago, but romance is not appreciated now. I feel quite sure that you will soon see a great improvement in me in this respect, Marilla. I'm sure I hope so, said Marilla skeptically. But Matthew who had been sitting mutely in his corner, laid a hand on Anne's shoulder when Marilla had gone out. "'Don't give up all your romance, Anne,' he whispered shyly. "'A little of it is a good thing. Not too much, of course. But keep a little of it, Anne. Keep a little of it.'" Thanks for listening to this episode of Marilyn Lightstone Reads' Anne of Green Gables. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Zneimer. This is our third book in our Marilyn Lightstone Reads podcast. 
we invite you to go back and listen to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Jane Eyre and Marilyn Lightstone Reads A Christmas Carol if you haven't already. You can help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in the iTunes and Android podcast stores. While you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.